Janet, thank you so much for reading God's Word to us. And my friends, it's wonderful to be back here and to share the Word with you this morning. Um, excuse me a moment, I just need a means of clicking the thing on. There we go. Fantastic. It's wonderful to be with you again uh, this morning on a, what is basically just a flying visit, but particularly to talk about this man called Elijah. And, and I want to welcome you, particularly if you're watching on Catch Up or if you're joining us live and engaging in some, uh, what should we say, sofa sanctification. Um, do make sure you've got a coffee or a tea or a G&T or whatever you're drinking. And um, we're going to look at this man, Elijah, this morning. Hey, I've just had a thought. Um, do any of you watch Gogglebox on the TV? Gogglebox is where, where, where a, a television company puts a camera on the top of somebody's telly who's watching on, watching a film, say, and they film all their reactions and they make a programme about it. And if you're watching online, how about, how about we do that sometime? There's an idea for your church leaders at your next deacons meeting. There you go. <laughs> Uh, in, in your series, uh, Work in Progress, we're coming this morning to look at this man, Elijah, the man who was discouraged. And that reading kind of sums it all up. Um, but when we think about Elijah, some of us are going to say, well, surely this man was, he was the mighty prophet. Wasn't he the one who challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel to a, to, to a God duel? You know, we'll both build altars and um, we'll both pray to our gods and let's see whose God lights up the altar from the sky. And bear in mind, this is a blue sky. It's been a drought for three and a half years. And the uh, prophets of Baal, they cry and they chant and they march around and they cut themselves with knives and they, they make a real, a real mess of the whole thing. Nothing happens. So Elijah taunts them. And he says, come on, guys, has your God gone to sleep or has he gone to the toilet or something? We think that's probably the implication of has he gone on a journey, for those of you who are familiar with um, 1 Kings chapter 18. And, uh, uh, but, but in spite of all the taunting and all the marching and praying and dancing around, nothing happens. So then Elijah rebuilds the altar of the Lord and he kneels down and he covers it with water to make life even more difficult. And he says, God, bring the fire. And out of a blue sky, fire arrives on that altar. Wow, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall? And I think if it had been me, I'd have been taking a picture on it and I'd be, I'd be sharing it on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok, you name it, it would be there. But that's not where we find Elijah after the events of 1 Kings, chapter 18. You see, where we find him in this chapter, we find him running on empty. And running on empty is a classic symptom of someone who was given too much. As it happens, I've never been drunk, but I do understand hangovers. It's a classic occupational hazard for pastors on a Monday morning. On Sunday, you give yourself emotionally and spiritually. You pour your heart out to people by worship leading, if you're a musician, or preaching. 
and you're meeting people and interacting with them. You ride this sort of emotional roller coaster for the whole day. And when you're young, you can get away with it just through sheer brute strength. But as you age, you soon realize that this constant giving out takes its toll and it can't go on forever. One particular friend of mine comes to mind. He was a talented, talented preacher and leader in a church of about 120 people. He was, he was bright, he was enthusiastic, he was vivacious. Everyone wanted a slice of Pete. That's not his real name, although he did say I could tell you his story. Now, he was spotted by a larger church, the other end of the country, who were looking for a new senior pastor. Their previous incumbent had gone into theological education. And Pastor Pete was, was flattered that he had been asked and convinced himself that this was God's call on his life and accepted their invitation. But within months, he was out of his depth. And he ended up being sectioned into psychiatric hospital and is only really recovering now. And my friends, we all have this, this kind of psycho-spiritual tank and that tank needs to be replenished if we are to survive in almost any kind of giving out Christian ministry. And it's not just the pressure of preaching, the research, the prayer, the writing, the delivery cycle. It's the, the loneliness of leadership and the fuzziness of the boundaries in church life that take its toll and drain the soul. And Pastor Pete became a broken man because he honestly tried to do the right thing and act honorably. And he told me, no one was more surprised than I was. I kept asking, what on earth is happening to me? I seem to be out of control. Put simply, and perhaps a tad harshly, Pete was giving out more than he was taking in. And this, this psycho-spiritual deficit nearly caused him to abandon his ministry. Now, my friends, that's exactly where we find Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He's been giving and giving and giving and giving, and, and, and he's seen some incredible stuff happen. But now he's at rock bottom. So what we're going to do is, we'll, well, let's diagnose his, his condition because, in my view, he was running on empty in three key domains. He was running on empty spiritually. This man was spiritually drained by the victory on Mount Carmel with those prophets of Baal. And the same is true for anyone involved in spiritual ministry or any job, actually, that requires a high degree of personal contact and an empathy with people left, right, and centre. It puts us on a state of, of high alert, and the brain triggers the release of a hormone adrenaline to maintain that alertness. And my word, it works. But we pay a price for these periods of high vigilance. And the adrenal system demands time for recovery. It creates a state of reduced energy and irritability and low mood. Sometimes it's called post-adrenaline depression. And any of us who have periods of peak demand, for instance, pastors at the weekend, 
when most of their public ministry takes place, can succumb to post-adrenaline depression on Monday mornings. And if you don't believe me, I do give you permission to go and ask Rosie, who saw it many, many times in our marriage. This is not normal physical effort. This is a spiritual effort that has biochemical implications. And as I say, the same can happen for regular weak workers, for CEOs, for lawyers, for people who have to give emotionally in their work. They find post-adrenaline depression striking as soon as they take their foot off the gas. Even Jesus noticed this. You see, one day a crowd was pressing in on him and a woman with a blood condition thinks, if only I can just touch his coat, I'll be healed. And so I can imagine her elbowing her way through the crowd, finally getting to within reaching distance of Jesus, reaching out and touching him, and all of a sudden, whoosh, it's as if something's happened inside her body and she feels remarkably better. And Jesus said, somebody touched me. And the disciples said to Jesus, don't be daft. They're all jostling you. Just look at the crowd. But Jesus said this touch was different because power has gone out of me. Elijah was spiritually drained at this point. But actually that wasn't the only dimension of his uh, his depletion. He was also physically drained. The nation of Israel had been in a state of drought for three and a half years and Elijah believed that the victory on Mount Carmel would herald herald the end of that drought. And so at the end of chapter 18, verse 41, if you've got your Bible handy, you might like to look at it. Elijah said to Ahab, go and eat and drink. Ahab was the king, for there is the sound of heavy rain. I haven't seen anything yet, but I can hear it in my head. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. What did Elijah do? Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel. He bent down to the ground and put his head between his knees. A classic, classic posture of exhaustion. This man was beyond the end of himself. Is this why Elijah sent his servant to look for the signs of rain instead of going himself? Possibly, we can't prove it. But sure enough, rain clouds came on the horizon. And then if you've got 1 Kings 18 open, have a look at verse 44. Elijah said to his servant, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stop you. Meanwhile, as Elijah sat exhausted on the top of Mount Carmel, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off off to Jezreel. And then this happened. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and he ran ahead of Ahab all the way into Jezreel. Now, it is of course true that the power of the Lord enabled Elijah to to run all those miles ahead of Ahab's chariot, but he was still burning calories in the process. He ran a long distance. And then we can also see that he was running away from Jezebel because Jezebel issued this threat, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of those Baal prophets you slaughtered. And then we read this, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life to Beersheba. Then he, he himself went a day's journey further into the desert. Can you see all the way through this narrative, this man is running 
It's a huge physical effort to be expended. In fact, if you look at a map, he did two marathons in two days. He was physically drained. And this gives us rise to a, a third dimension of his depletion, and that is he was emotionally exhausted. Jezebel, the queen, a woman with unparalleled power, had issued a death threat. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of the prophets that were massacred on Carmel. And we can, we can see here how, how malicious Jezebel was. She sent a messenger. If she genuinely wanted Elijah out of the way, why not just send some troops and have done with it? This is the mentality of the torturer. She doesn't want her victim to die, she just wants him to suffer. So here's a man, Elijah, in desperate, desperate need, deeply drained, and with no one to share his soul with. So Elijah came to a broom tree and he sat down and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Elijah here was suffering the perfect storm of exhaustion. Spiritual, physical and emotional, all coming together. And there are two ironies of his position. And the first is that every, at the very time that Elijah needed fellowship, he needed a buddy to put his arm around him and say, come on Elijah, together we'll get through this. At the very time he needed fellowship, Elijah sought isolation. He went on a day's journey into the desert completely alone, left his servant at Beersheba. And the other irony is that Jezebel's threat would have given him what he wanted. Lord, take my life. All he had to do was to stay put. Take my life and let it be a million miles away from thee. Take my moments and my days Fill them with a misty haze. Am I talking to someone who has seriously contemplated suicide of late? Elijah cried, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. And my friend, if that's you... If that's ever been you, then you're in good company. Because that's where Elijah was. He had concluded that his work was fruitless and therefore his life was not worth living. And he descended on a vortex of despair. My friend, if that's you please just hang on in there with me because that's only half of the story. 
Because that was the place where God met him. That was the place where God sought out Elijah and began a slow but gentle return to fellowship with his loving Heavenly Father. Rosie and I have a friend who came to that place and was just about to jump off a cliff near us in Eastbourne when he thought he saw a light and he felt God say, don't do it. Not a Christian at the time, he is now. And we got to know him and were able to put in place, you know, help him sort of see what, what God might have been doing in his life. And God rescued him from the very lowest point of his life. You see, that's where God goes to reach people he loves. You might think Elijah had a fantastic experience on Mount Carmel and that would be the thing that he'll remember all his life. No, no, this is the moment he's going to remember. When God helped him to turn a corner. And let's just have a look at the passage and see what, what God did in helping this man to recover. And first of all, surprisingly, perhaps he gave him a new diet. One of Elijah's needs was physical. Verse 5, if you've got your Bible open. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he slept. God gave him a new diet. It sounds like he'd been bombing around, living on whatever junk food they had available at the time, probably foraging up in the mountains, truth be told. And... And here is God giving him a good meal. How practical God is. And one meal wasn't enough. If you're, you're, again, if you're looking at this, uh, verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. What, another journey, God? So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days. And where did he go in those 40 days? You see, God took him to a new place. Again, verse 8. He travelled for 40 days and 40 nights, which might just be a phrase that was used in ancient Hebrew to mean a long while. So we're not counting 40 as 39 plus 1. A good long time he was travelling. He travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. God took him to Horeb. Now, that was the place of the burning bush where Moses heard God's voice when a bush suddenly sprung, in, uh, sprung into fire. That was the place where the law was given. That was the place where Elijah knew. He knew that God had spoken to him in the past. God had in, been encountered on this mountain in the past. And for Elijah, that probably was part of the problem. It was all in the past tense. Am I, am I speaking to someone this morning for whom thriving spiritual life is all in the past? To be sure, you know how to keep up appearances, and that might be why you're here this morning or why you're watching online. And you do it well. 
you know, you make jolly sure that the front of house operation is a good one. But the time span since you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, that time span is huge. A lot of water's gone under the bridge since then. God took Elijah back to the place where it all started. Might there there be a place for you where the distance between heaven and earth collapses? Where where we're able to, to recapture a spiritual spark from the past? From something that happened previously? Because, you know, life is best understood backwards even though it has to be lived forwards. Might it be good to make a trip to a place where God has spoken to you in the past? Can I share with you one of my very special places where I feel God's spoken to me in the past? It's right here. You know, this place means an awful lot to me and to Rosie because of what we've seen God do. And we rejoice with you in seeing God do more stuff. For me, this is a special place. So how then did God get through to his exhausted servant. Did he use dramatic events? To be sure, Elijah, in this cave up in the mountain, he sees, he hears a wind and it rips the mountain apart, fire that burns it to the ground, an earthquake that that rocks it to the core. But the Lord wasn't in any of the drama. And actually, there's a little word for us in there because sometimes we tend to think that God is more powerfully speaking through the big fire and the dramatic. In reality, God whispered a question to Elijah. What are you doing here? Now, exactly what did God mean by that question? Because if God meant, what are you doing here geographically, Elijah would just turn to him and say, well, you sent me. No, no, I think God meant, what are you doing here spiritually? Elijah, why have you come to this point? Why have you got so low? And Elijah just blurts it all out. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. My friend, if, if God is asking you the same question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here spiritually? Why are you at the place where you are? Can I assure you that he's doing it because he loves you? Because he can bring healing where there is hurt. He can bring assurance where there's anxiety. He can bring joy where there's sadness. God's promise to Isaiah was, I will give you a garment of praise in exchange for the spirit of despair. And so God asks the question again, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
And Elijah gives him the same answer, although I can't help feeling that we're intended to hear that in a different tone of voice. And God's reply to Elijah was, Elijah, my friend, you are not finished. I have a ministry for you. I have a job for you, my friend. I have a purpose for you. Go back the way you came. My friends, the route to recovery is often the same as the route into exhaustion, except in reverse. Why did I get so worn out? Well, seek to understand that deeply and then do your best to reverse, do the opposite. And God said to Elijah, go to the desert of Damascus, another long journey, by the way, uh, and when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. So, Elijah, you're not finished. I'm going to get you to anoint the next king. Then in verse 16, we discover God saying to him, Elijah, you will leave a legacy. Your work won't stop with you. Go and anoint Elisha. Sorry, very close names. Go and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. Elijah, you are not finished. You will leave a legacy behind you. The Lord hasn't given up on you. And then in verse 18, Elijah, uh, God said to Elijah, Elijah, buddy, you are not alone. I know it feels like you're alone just at this minute, but there are another 7,000 people who share your love for me. When we are suffering a spiritual deficit, one of the things that Satan wants us to think more than anything else is that you are alone and you're not worth it. When God had a word with Paul on one occasion when life was tough, God said to him, keep on preaching, Paul, because I have many men in this city for you to reach. The Lord will speak to you. Maybe not through the dramatic signs, but through the gentle whisper. You're not finished. You will leave a legacy. Your life has a purpose. You're not alone. I think it would be good just to stand to pray together and we can crystallize one or two of these ideas in our minds. Should we do that? I pray for those of us this morning who who are down, who identify with running on empty. Heavenly Father, you know the things that have happened in my life that have caused me to get where I am now. And thank you that this morning you heard my prayer. Lord, I thank you that with you there are no scrap heaps. You have a purpose for me and a future that I want to explore. Some of us may be hurting because of what other people have said to us, like Jezebel to Elijah. Lord, would you help me to see the words or the actions of other people as you see them? Bring me recovery from the pain that they've caused, I pray. 
Maybe you're just at the end of your tether. And the Lord wants you to know today that he hasn't given up on you. You're not finished. You will leave a legacy. You're not alone. Let's just be quiet for a moment and listen out for God's gentle whisper. Thank you, Lord.